0: Someone else has already said that This is the best. The best, the best ones aren't as good as you probably think they are. What is best in life? I did the best I could. Doing my best. Best best. Best best, 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 best.
1: Hello, 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 and welcome back to Best of the Best Podcast. With myself, Connor Keys, alongside me as always. Mr. Ronan, where have you been all my life, Mullen? I've had a pint. You've had pints. That's not good. And a cocktail. And a cocktail. Oh, lordy. (laughs) So, we are here with uh, a very special return. Uh, We do apologise to everybody who's been missing us. If you're listening to this for the first time and haven't realised we've been away... Well, you're pretty much like everybody else. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but yes, we're we're we are delighted to have a special one-off, uh, weird into uh, mm. weird episode because we'll do an intro, then we have something to go into, and then we have you know, so it's yeah. it's nice, it's spicy, it's different. not our normal format, not the normal. So, uh, yes, uh, what well, we've been lucky to uh, be part of, or one half of us have been part of. Is a interview with the director of this episode's best of the best, which is White Men Can't Jump, mm-hmm. and so the Subterranean Film Club, Mister Connor McGill, and Mister Ronan Mullen sat down with Mister Ron Sheldon.
2: Yeah, he was the director
1: weird. of White Men Can't Jump,
2: and writer, and writer, and Oscar-nominated writer of Bull Durham, and That's director
1: right, Bull Durham. Jeez, I forgot. About and if that. you don't
2: like Bull, Dur- Bull Durham, White Men Can't Jump, and Tim Cup. You can Just get the fuck tent away, up
1: as well. That's right, yeah. But Bill Durham, my god,
2: that's a sensational film. Wild
1: show, uh, so I forgot about that, yeah. So Ron Shelton, um, White Man Can't Jump for me was a massive, uh, uh it was probably one, it was the first time I'd watched anything with Yo Mama jokes. Oh, yes, it was the very first, you know, that Boston balls back and forth. Oh, and yes, and it was a genuine, uh, for. <laughs> For A culture like myself, uh, in mm. rural Tyrone, like mm. yourself, fair, must have known. You know, this was a quite uh, 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 an introduction.
2: Aye, you it know, it was just when the boys are given fall blazes at the fall, mart. Oh, aye. it was that, but Venice Beach, California, yeah, a lot of sun, a
1: lot of muscles, a lot of a lot of fucking silky basketball moves, a
2: lot of silky basketball moves, uh, a lot of bikini babes, a lot of bikini babes, and rad
1: dudes. The, the white man can't jump the white man in question, uh. And throughout this film is Woody Harrelson. Mm-hmm. Alongside him is Wesley Snipes, and then you have the supporting cast of, well, all you need, Rosie Perez. Well, we did. I didn't want to. You see, here's here's the thing. I should let make this clear to the, the I, listeners. I haven't listened to the. No, no, but right? this, is, this is good because so I don't know what she's covered. So yeah. I'm going to ask now beforehand. Did you talk about the nips?
2: I didn't. Okay, that's fine. No, just want to know. Just want to find only out. Only because. Connor McGill uh-huh. um, is an extraordinarily moral man. He is. He is. He. And I would not want to embarrass him in front of Ron Shelton. Are you very lucky? But that- Ron Shelton <laughs> was willing to talk about nips. I, I knew he, it in his eyes. You would know I could tell by his face. Rightly. Ron will be at it. Ron Shelton. Ron, way- or sorry, as I call him, Ronnie Shelton. Ronnie Shelton. From here on in, when I met, we talked. <laughs> and he... Um, <laughs> he. Uh, in previous interviews I've watched, he has talked about Rosie Perez just being a masterpiece and how she blew him away and how this was literally, mm. the, uh, we talk about it, but this character was meant to be a high, very high highfalutin white woman mm-hmm. who had a lot of money behind her and basically Woody Harrelson's character was pulling the money out of her. Yeah. But when he when he saw Rosie Perez, he tells a great story, I'm not going to ruin it, but he, when he saw her, that he was like, I'm rewriting the whole thing. Okay. But when I asked him what did he change, he says, nothing. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't change a word. It's it just she just fitted setup, so yeah. well. It changed, so no. it
1: changed them from uh, well. I wouldn't have. Uh, we always talk about as well, what could have happened on a film. I don't know how that would have uh, went down. Uh, a lot of people basically hated, like a Karen, of course. Sense, a, a lot of people
2: hate the character because of her voice and how she acts. But oh no, it fits perfectly into mm-hmm. that world. But what I will but say, it makes the more Bonnie and Clyde
1: thing than a of course, a yes, yes because they're they're like, they're yeah.
2: both on the same page and yeah. they're both fighting for the same. But I will say. Mm-hmm. And I know, going by your eyes, when you said her name, uh-huh. A sexual Awakening.
1: Quite, yes. A Awakening. There was awakening.
2: a lot of things that blew up. Everything went and right.
1: It, Correct. Right, you're talking, Correct. Uh, released in 1993. <laughs> that, that's not me, by the way. <laughs> no, and released in 1982. Movie. Sorry, you may have released in 1983. What I'm saying is 1983 is when we would have seen it. Uh, aye. Earliest, because don't forget, Maybe. we're talking about those times where we're always a year behind America. Kind of sorta. Of. So it uh, could have been even ninety four before I finally got to see it on video because I wanted to be tape? able to go and see her in the cinema. Uh-huh. And now, let's just say, don't to the younger children Sweet out there. Jesus. You don't know the, the, how, how lucky you are to have a remote control. That had to pause. button Aye. Voracious. Rather than having to get up and rewind. <laughs> Manually do it yourself. Uh, <sighs> That was quite Anyway, that's that's that literally like sorry, fifteen <laughs> seconds of a scene. But that as, as you say, quite an awakening, uh quite uh yeah. quite quite an eruption. Lovely. But game. the the main uh backbone behind all this is the relationship between Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson. Who yeah. again uh Wesley Snipes plays the, the sort of the entrepreneur slash hustler. Yeah,
2: streetways is a wee bit more than And Woody Harrelson plays the what would you call it? Another, literally like another? Hick, I like, like a heck who's just walked into a basketball court and fucking who is also a hustler because but he's, he's a fucking amazing basketball player. Yeah. So,
1: um, but again, so you're you're talking loads of things. You're talking Venice Beach. You're talking mm-hmm. the uh you're talking the the, the sort of black white relationship. Mm-hmm. You're talking sort of the white guy coming into ultimately what was a, a heavily populated black sort of sport mm-hmm. in that the street basketball. And and it really was like if you're talking '92, you know, that's like you're talking Denzel and Tom Hanks. You're talking, you know, there was a lot of fucking mm-hmm. you know uh, Little Weapon, all these sort of stuff. There was a lot of race relation stuff going on, but this one was just because basketball took the sort of the 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 shine.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: It it had to have that extra comedy, of which course, it does, and fucking spades. I
2: see mm-hmm. some of that back and forth. Do you remember some of the lines? Well, the he's he's fucking... t- w- w- in this interview. We're talking to him about it, and like he wrote it, and he's still laughing about yeah. the stuff he wrote. Man, <laughs> because he's like, well, that was a question.
1: Did you ask him a question about improvisation? Was there any? No, he wrote every line. Every line of those. Every fucking like, line. Those Snaps and those back and forth. All him. Holy fuck! Because he boy.
2: used to go to uh, like outside outdoor basketball games mm-hmm. and just sit and listen to people talking. He'd play in some, he was a sportsman himself, like, I mean, he was very athletic, but he he would sit and listen. Because (laughs) as a writer, primarily he's a writer, like, Mm -hmm. as a writer, he was just, this stuff was just seeking into his brain. He couldn't, he couldn't believe that this was a world that people aren't trying to make a documentary about or a film about or write a book about, and they weren't, Mm -hmm. you know. You think of that documentary, Hoot Dreams, about the kids. That's who, right, yeah. Like, And that all starts... The majority of that film is about outdoor basketball mm-hmm. on these courts where people are brutal to each other and you don't get a word in edgeways. And if you fail, you get nailed to the wall. If you win, you still get nailed to the wall. Because yeah. it's just back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. But it builds a character and that's what he was trying to figure out. If you can be a hustler in that world, you're a harsh character. Like, mm-hmm, Absolutely. And, and so then you're into... the it's, it's got everything. It's a
1: sports movie. It's a body relationship mm-hmm. movie. It's a fucking crime movie. Mm-hmm. It's got, you know, it's got all, <laughs> it's got games showing. You know, it's got TV. There's every element in it. It just, it fits so much into such a, a, a compact piece of time. Like, yeah. it, it really does fit a lot in. Uh, so, obviously, before you go and even listen to this, uh, uh, this interview, go back and watch, as always, in case there are any spoilers and stuff. Um, I've already spoiled the fact that
2: there may be or may not be. Rosie Perez's nips. <laughs> we might have been talking about Woody Harrelson's nips. Could have been Woody's. Or Wesley Snipes' nips. Wes well, has got a question. I was uh, going to... The spandex alone The spandex there. alone yeah. and the French cycling hats. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask the question. He did say he has Kevin Costner, Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson's numbers and he could have done whatever he wanted there and then. He could have zoomed them. And I was going to ask, would he mind... Talking to Wesley. Wesley and asking him. Yes, absolutely. Can he unblock me from Twitter? Yeah.
1: And had he ever thought of, change his name too?
2: And then t- Wesley would answer the phone and go, I don't even control my Twitter. And yes. I'd be like,
1: that's why you why weren't you, talking
2: to me. Why you do this to me, Wesley? And so he wanted to be. Snesley. He, I want him to be to called his Snesley Wipes. Yes. Because, let's face it, they're not putting him in. No. The Castle Blankets anymore? Not anymore, no. He's in the countermark America too. Yes. But, Snesley Wipes could be the next blade. Could be. And, you know, IRS wouldn't catch him. Different name. Different hey. name. Ding, ding, ding. Know what I'm
1: saying? Uh, okay. Did you have pints of
2: patching? Is that what you had? I had um, <laughs> four pints of tenants in the Avery Bar no more. <laughs> and then my wife and my friend had cocktails and pints.
1: Well, that is quite an afternoon.
2: So, it was fantastic. The sun shining. It was literally fantastic. The drink flowing. Oh, the heat.
1: The heat. The only thing missing was two boys hustling on basketball. I had lost all my money. Down the back market. <laughs> <coughs> Rumors that Duck and Johnson were on the way. <laughs> yeah. So the weird thing about this is, so uh, obviously this is quite surreal in that the... Uh, it, even though we do uh, have a mutual, uh, somebody who we both know uh, as a director, mm-hmm. we've never actually had a director on this no. uh, podcast, let alone the director of the thing we're actually covering yeah. on this. So this came about, uh, the, uh, it came about almost, am i am I right in saying you came to me about two years ago, a year about and a half ago? About
2: that, yeah. right after lockdown.
1: And obviously, two of us shit our pants, and
2: we were
1: like, yes, we'll do this, absolutely.
2: Yeah, it... Um my friend, our friend, John Mayer, comedian from Uri, he lives in London and he was working with, um, he was working on another podcast. He's like a writer and a producer and he's an everyman like, mm-hmm. and he, he, he just messaged me one day and he was like, would you be interested in something to do with white man can't jump or something along those lines? And it was just so out of the blue. I went, what do you mean for the podcast? And I thought he meant he was coming over. And he wanted to to talk about it. And I went, of course, if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. He was, no, no, I think I have a line on um, Ron Shelton. And basically what he was doing was he was tasked to find somebody to do with a big sports movie. Now, I might be paraphrasing here. I'm not too sure. But what he ended up doing was emailing whoever. And they got back to him and says, why don't you just talk to Ron Shelton? He went, no. No, we meant like one of the sound engineers or something or <laughs> the boy that like held ron Shelton's water and he was mm-hmm. like no 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 ron Shelton's like the nicest guy in the world like, like he's really affable he's just like a really approachable guy and he'll talk to you like Brilliant. and he couldn't believe it mm-hmm. so he got him on this podcast and then he just he sent me his email and went just email him and whatever happened me and you we, we were doing something else and we just couldn't get things together where we were on a consistent sort of yes, we'll do this now mm-hmm. because it meant it was going to be big, like you you would have to, like, yeah. Oh, geez, was if we're doing produce. it, we're going to record yeah. the video interview, we're going to record everything. So, whatever many years passed by, and I'm out with the guys from the community cinema, um, the film club, and almost the film club, and myself, Arlene McComb, Connor mcgill and Aaron McAleer, are all sitting at a table, and I Connor mcgill's telling me because the film club has to show certain films these things aren't where you can just turn up and put on whatever you want yeah you have to follow a sort of subscribe yeah, to, to a be certain indie of cinema, course you have to be. Yeah, like yeah. you have to follow the rules mm. but there's a huge list of films to pick from and they're all great mm-hmm. but white man can't jump was right in the middle of it and i went i might have something here <laughs> so mm. i said to Connor, right i told them all i don't think arlene and Aaron McAleer who's called Pengu, I'm gonna call him Pengu from here. I was on, going on. To say, I had to think for a second. Ar- Ar- wrong Arlene. I don't think they believe me. Uh-huh. But Connor just fucking laser focus was like, right? Are get, you serious? Get this sorted. I went, I'm I'm 100 serious. He's like, right now. Of course, we're out for pizza. Uh-huh. I've already had a bottle and a half of wine. you well, know. Then right? then later on we had an hour. You know right? Hip, uh-huh. a slaps sh- a of mm-hmm. pints, mm-hmm. and then I forgot all about saying to him Monday morning. Same mm-hmm. ad- email what email it was Ron Shelton bar, sent it to him I was at work uh-huh. sitting at my desk <laughs> and then my boss was sitting in front of me and all she heard was me going what? <laughs> no <"Nah." laughs> what? and it was Connor sent me going Ron Shelton just got back to me and says yeah when are you free? like when are we free? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> so whatever way it transpired we got him down to a Thursday two three weeks ago you were in dis- well this is the problem you, yeah.
1: it was ron ron shelton's uh, schedule doesn't revolve around ruby no no it doesn't and, revolve uh, around your your family now. summertime is just a wee bit difficult so um for the sake of my child i had to sacrifice myself talking to ron shelton i, I remind her uh, every 30 minutes of that <laughs> uh but literally a complete waste of time um but yeah, yeah it's it, it was i mean quite an experience for 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 all of these obviously it was massive great for the film club but obviously, great for us because we now get to use it as an episode. Yeah, but th- this is
2: our this is the other side of it. We weren't we weren't doing it for either. Mm-hmm. We were sort of doing it because he'd forgot what we had talked about at the start that we were showing the film. He just was happy to talk. To talk, okay. you know. We talked about his previous films. We talked about future films. We talked about the things he's got in the pipeline. We've mm-hmm. talked about his book, which is coming out called Church of Baseball, which is available now. But we were just talking. Yeah. Like he was the most lovely person. Like. Deadly. And he just didn't, there was no airs of grace, he was just in his office, mm-hmm. and we'll put up the video at a later date, but you can see it's just as natural and normal, and Brilliant. he's probably been asked the same question a million times, but he was just a gentleman about everything. So it was, I was, it was really. So, <clears throat> the episode is, I mean, the, the interview is a good hour long,
1: maybe mm-hmm. a, bit, a bit more, so uh, fair play to him for giving up his time for that, you know. He could have talked more, yeah. we had to cut wow. him off.
2: <laughs> okay, Like deadly. he's chatting about Ireland though. Excellent. Excellent and then at the end we're pretty much talking to him about at the start he's talking about all his connections to Ireland and mm-hmm. we're like here next time you're in he's a guy no bar the next day connor emails him just mm-hmm. to say thank you so much it meant the world to us that mm-hmm. you would share you know this with us and yeah. we can do what we want with it, and you have no problem with it. and he was like yeah yeah but i'm serious when i'm coming to Donegal i'm <laughs> gonna email this email address and you just have to come meet me i was going what thanks for ronnie scheltz but he comes over here with Costner. Kevin Cosney and Ronnie shouts plus Rooney August the Mullins, and Con, R- and Con McGill, big row
1: and imagine big, and f- and for it, flaunting myself about big it. row and weak heavy just on the fucking Aye. lash,
2: eating, eating, e tabs, eating pain. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but I was like <laughs> dr- dr- drinking stout and Donegal until it's white men can dump.
2: White men can <laughs> dump. <laughs> white men will dump. <laughs> no, it was it was, but, but like, all credit in the world to Conor McGill and.
1: Yeah, so you'll hear that's the other. So I mean, uh it's it's uh, another Connor you're gonna hear in this interview. It's mm-hmm. not
2: myself. Obviously, you'll notice because he doesn't have the
1: same dulcet tones as myself. No. Uh, I don't know what the audio quality is like, actually. I assume it's, it's pretty okay. Good. Well, yeah, okay, it's good. Pretty good. So we'll do we uh we'll take a listen to it, have a listen yourselves, and then we'll come back at the end to, to say bye-bye.
4: My mother's side of the family is all over the place. Scotch, Irish, English, everybody who Fights against each other. That's my family. (laughs) Uh, And they came over here. uh, I mean, just one generation ago to to be a boat builders, And they were from, well, first Ireland. There was the Ireland, Scottish, Irish, Scottish, and then the British. And they were all boat builders. And they came over to build boats in in L.A. Harbor and ended up... Anyway, uh, I've done a golf tour over there. Uh, I I was at the... uh, they had us. They showed all my movies at the Dublin Film Festival once, and that's right. I I um. I I had my my first assistant director and my brother fly over after I was done, and we did we designed a golf tour that went. We went up to Royal County Down, one of my favorite golf courses in the world. Then we went all the way down to the Ring of uh, down by Waterville and Ring of Kerry and all that, and. Yeah. And then we're going to go up the west. We're going to run out of time. Go up, I want to go up to Donegal and around again, but I didn't get to go there, so next trip. Good. We were just there yesterday, me and my wife. Where, whereabouts? In Donegal and Bundorn. In Donegal. Well, my friend, I didn't know him then, but I've since worked with him, and I've got him attached you know, to another show, Brendan Gleeson. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I love him. He's from Donegal. Yeah, yeah. And, um and he's always saying, I can't get on the phone because there's a bad connection in Donegal. And I said, I, got a I just saw you in a bar in London, you lied mother. <laughs> Ron, so,
0: listen, thanks very much. And thanks very much for agreeing us. i, I give you a bit of background about maybe where, where we are coming from. So we run a, a community cinema here in, in Oma, Northern Ireland. So um, we've had... So we what we do is we're actually in a the community is called subter- the cinema is called subterranean because it's it's in a basement, and we we run regular showings of films every month as such as well too. But we've been we've been asked for a number of t- number of years now to show White Men Can't Jump. Um, it helps probably that a lot of us are massive fans of your work and particularly in terms of all the body of work that you have done in that as well too and. White Men Can't Jump made a massive impression here, along with a lot of other sports films, Bull Durham, Cobb, um, Tin Cup as well, of others. So we we decided to do because it's 30 years, which is crazy to realize that we thought that we would show white men can't jump um, t- tomorrow evening. And it's, oh, really? it's it's nearly sold out in terms of tickets and unavailability. And so what we were thinking, and if you were happy enough with was that we were going to talk a wee bit about white men ju- can't jump and about your experiences with it. But also it's pretty free-flowing to talk a bit more about you know, your career also today, about Bull Durham, about Tim Cup, about the book that you have out as well too. So and, and anything else that you, you might want to talk about. So we're we're pretty much in your hands if that's okay. No, you just you ask the questions and I'll answer them. Brilliant. Thanks very much. So I I should have introduced myself. My name's Connor and this is Ronan, just in case you know out there, of course, to protect our names. So white men can't jump, Ron, like 30 years ago. Why do you think it still stands up to this day and age? Because I I watched the game recently and it's absolutely still on the money in terms of topics that covers the whole idea about the importance of sport particularly sports based and local communities at that grassroots level and also the camaraderie in terms of the characters and uh, uh, that element what way do you think it's that it a stood the test of time well i'm glad that
4: it doesn't seem to age you know the cultural social references um are are bigger than the specific moment uh that it was shot in i was afraid to watch it again And I was sort of happy that it it had aged so well. And um, um, I'm thrilled that you're showing it. I'm thrilled that it still connects across the pond. Um, People who speak the English language, so it's sort of what they used to call the Commonwealth, all love this movie. This was huge in South Africa. um, Basically, in the former British Empire, where they speak English, because the language is a big part of the movie. And... And it's a really hard movie to translate, if you can imagine. Yeah. But, I mean, the foreign translations were just dreadful. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, um, so I think the issues haven't changed. Uh, I think they're it's still contemporary. <clears throat> I mean, the sort of the cosmic joke underneath it is that even these very different men of different ethnic backgrounds who are connected by a game, they ultimately get along with each other better than either of them do with the women in their life. That's not, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying, that's what I I see out there. Um, And and there is affection. and, And it's also, I think one of the horrible things about the divided world we live in is people tend to get along when they have the opportunity to to, in in the workplace, in the playground, and they realize their own ignorances that they're raised with. Um, And these are just two guys who are hustlers who end up with great mutual respect. And they also don't mind saying whatever they think about the other one, including cutting him to the bone, cutting him down, um, they're open and it's not, there's a not, lack of judgment about it. It's just a bunch of guys going at it, you know, and at the end of the day, having a beer um, and afraid to go home and confront their wives. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, like, like many men. <laughs>
4: you see the
2: way I read that you had said in the past that the scene, uh, I think it's Marcus Johnson, where he goes to get the gun out of the Gulf. you actually witnessed that? A version
4: of that? But, uh, what happened was, I mean, most of, this, most of my movies are full of things that happened to me that I reinvent dramatically in the narrative. There was a playground in LA. It was in the East Hollywood, a very rough neighborhood, but not, it was where there was, was a court, uh, outdoor courts, and there were big games every day. And I'd go over there two or three times a week. And I went over there for an afternoon game, 3 o'clock on Friday, and it was chained up. It was locked. And there was an old guy sitting there, because there's always old guys sitting there. And I said, uh, what happened? He said, oh, you didn't hear what happened? I said, no. He said, well, you know, Willie got shot. I said, Willie? He's a basketball player. He said, yeah. How's he doing? He said, oh, he's dead. Dead? He said, there was an argument on the court. And, I, and, and I, if you're a basketball player, you know it's going to be about is it a charge or a block? I mean, I don't know what the football equivalent is. But it's always an argument. Did, did I have the right word? Or did you have the right word? I said, he got an argument about a call. And he got heated. And usually they get heated and they get funny. And then the game goes on. But he said, Raymond or whatever, Raymond went to the glove box. And that's, we used, I don't know if you still, we, used to, we still call them the glove compartment, but I've never seen it. Yeah,
0: seen sure. yeah, it,
4: yeah. I've never seen a glove in it my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, he went to the glove box. Said, he went to the glove box, he says, yeah. And the old guy said, man, you go to the glove box, you gotta run. And Willie didn't run, and he came back with a gun and shot him. And so at that point, I moved my game indoors. And in fact, a lot of guys moved indoors. To the Hollywood Y, YMCA, which was a really old, funky building on a very tough street in Hollywood, because Hollywood's pretty funky. Mm-hmm. And, and so the games in Hollywood Y got really good and, and fast and, and um, you know, everybody was welcome to play. But there were some really good college players, high school players, a few former pro players, and, and some guys that weren't any good at all. That was the, the democracy of the playground that I always loved. And uh, so th- that's where the story came from. The other half of that story was, um, there was a guy who I think his name really was Raymond. He was a like a seven foot high school star from South LA, uh, African-American. And he, he he wasn't very well prepared for life. And he went into the pros and he lasted about a week. And he came back and for like 10 years, he just sat outside with the guys on the curb in front of the liquor store. But he was seven feet tall. Oh. Everybody else was five eight. <laughs> <laughs> so and one day he can't get a job, he's scuffling. He puts on a ski mask, and walks inside and tries to hold up the store. He's seven everybody and the, and the guy said, Raymond, take that mask off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I I I put those two stories together. So see, see the likes of that.
2: Are a lot of the stories in this film stories that you witnessed? And if not, these are stories that you've created yourself? And if so, how did, you, how did you get them stories into your head?
4: Oh, that's the easy part. Getting them financed is the hard part. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yeah, you don't want to know places my head has been and a few places my body has been. Uh, I, I, I have not seen hustling for money on the basketball court, but I've heard about it. And so I, and I think it was bigger in New York than LA. And so I, at that time, before I wrote the script, I managed to get a lunch with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar,
2: Great.
4: who I had heard had some stories about this, and he told me some stories out of New York, which inspired me a little bit, but. So when he was like 14 years old, he was, you know, already seven feet. Yeah. And there were guys who would broker these games and they'd go into other neighborhoods and say, I got my I got three guys, and and, and you got three guys, and I'll bet you 500 dollars when my guys would be your guys. And you'd have to say, Well, who are your guys? Because there'd be a, a guy who was also a professional star playing in the offseason. So well, I got I got Joe and I got Charlie and I got this and he and he went to New Jersey this guy and he says I got Joe, I got Charlie. He said oh they're okay, they're not great. He says, I got this 14-year-old kid out of eighth grade. They go, okay, I'll take home. And it was the 14-year-old kid was Lou Alcinder, who became Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Right. So so they would use him as a ringer, is our we use a ringer as a term for a guy. Yeah. yeah. So those stories of Kareems kind of got me going very good
0: the, the the chemistry in white men is just like it's off the charts not just what between woody and wesley but also between rosie perez and woody also between with regards to the over supporting characters and that as well too and it's 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 hard it must be hard to bottle that, Ron. Is that is that a natural thing i know the script would have brought quite a lot of that type of the, the jokes out Would have brought quite a lot of the, the interaction out but how difficult is it in terms of capturing that for actors, and also in terms of your writing, in terms of in terms of the movie?
4: Well, the first time of that question is about Rosie Perez, and um, you know, keep in mind the part was written. It didn't say for a white girl, but it was implied because a girl that goes to a young woman who's going to a very fancy private women's college in the East, you know. The, the the Smith College or Bennington or Vassar these were elite colleges for women, and that she meets this this is the backstory you never we never have to tell you because you can buy you can infer it. and she meets a guy that feels like he's the warrior poet rebel athlete jock and she falls for him because most women I know fell for somebody crazy like that when they were twenty and. And now it's five years later, and that warrior, rabbit, rebel, athlete, poet looks less like that, more like a slacker. <laughs> you know, it's like, who have I run away with, you know? <laughs> um, and, and we had um, a woman who's become a big star who was about to, I won't use her name, but she was great. She was everything I had in my head. And, but... Like my casting director, who's an African American woman, said, Would you, what do you think about looking at a Latino woman or two? I said, Great, I don't care. I really don't. And so I read a couple. And then Rosie Perez, who had just been in Do the Right Thing, but keep in mind in Do the Right Thing, she's only in a couple scenes plus the title sequence. I mean, she's barely in it, even though you remember her. So I said, Sure, send her in. So Rosie comes in, I'm having lunch, and she walks in my office. And this is a temporary production office in an abandoned wallpaper factory. And um, she says, Can I curse on your show, guys? God, I mean, you what start away. She goes, Who the fuck are you? Who the fuck are you? <laughs> I go, <laughs> I said, I'm Ron. I'm the writer, director, and producer. She said, Oh, I fucked, fucked myself. I fucked myself. You must be Rosie. I said, How are you? She said, Well, I said the, the audition's still in about 15 minutes. I'm finished my lunch you can just wait out there. She's no, I, I ain't fucking doing it today. I go, why not? She's uh I'm having a bad fucking hair day. Now, I never, <laughs> I'd never heard the term bad hair day before. Now it's common, but it's the first time I'd heard it.
3: Yeah.
4: And I look at her, and I know that straight guys can't tell good hair days from bad hair days. So I'm going, well, um. What do you want to do? And she said, well, when I'm having a good, good fucking hair day, I'll call you. So now my, my casting director, woman of color, my producer, a woman, and my other producing partner, a woman, they realize Rosie's there, and they come running back down. Rosie, Rosie, you're early. but And I said, no, Rosie's not going to do it today. She's having a bad fucking hair day. <laughs> <laughs> And these women were like, Outright. no, 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 you can't just do that, Rosie. No, I said, no, it should be cool in a few days. So she disappeared, and they all said, why'd you do that? I said, I don't know, somebody like that never walked into my office. I want to give them a good hair day. So I thought nothing of it, about four days later, my assistant comes in and says, Rosie says she's having a good hair day. And I said, I you have her come in. <laughs> so she, she comes in, and I'm just crazy for how great an original character she is. And she's also from the streets of New York. She grew up with Mike Tyson in Brownsville. I mean, she has lived the hard street life. Really interesting. Really smart. Um, I still can't understand what she says, and I don't care. (laughs) And she got the part. She got the part. I mean, and the the good thing is that the studio head, who was a really hip dude, Joe Roth, he says, Rosie, that's a wild idea. Yeah, let's go with it. He didn't argue. Why don't you go with a white girl who's about to become a star? So I had a lot of support from the studio in that. Part two of the question was the chemistry of all the other players. Um, almost all those guys were former players who are either now actors or becoming actors. Or, uh, But they—they're some of them were college stars. Some of them were high school stars. Some of them were just still playing on the street. Um, and we had we had a lot of rehearsals, so they took the script and would play with it and play with it and play with it. I mean, I had N word in there, and they said we don't want to say that. I said fine, say what you want. And then later, I made another movie where it wasn't in there, and they all insisted we gotta have that in there. Said, fine, <laughs> you know, knock yourself out. So th- we did we we did a lot of rehearsals to get the rhythms going. Yeah, and then. They, they got in an argument one day, the guys, and they said, well, he's got all the good mama jokes. And I said, well, uh, they all said, I want a mama joke. And I said, well, why don't you guys all go home and come back with your mama jokes tomorrow? And we'll be having like a cutting contest. The best mama jokes win. <laughs> well, I, I wish I wish it was a digital, digital age, because I would have a director's cut with all the mama's jokes that didn't <laughs> we don't know where that footage is now but it would have been saved digitally because because all of it was x-rated the funniest stuff you just couldn't stop laughing but you could never get away with it on screen yeah. r-rated was one thing but just out there you know like <laughs> i'm married to a, a serbian woman lolita Davidovich, the actress and i know her friends the serbs cursing is triple x-rated it's beyond anything eastern european you know so um So the really, really crazy, insulting, politically incorrect, fabulously um, (laughs) vulgar, (laughs) mama jokes didn't survive.
0: Uh, Yeah, we, we were talking before you came on. And we were talking about some of the best mama jokes in the film, <laughs> and and the one about the can is still, I think, our favorite one.
4: That's me too, and I I don't understand it. I love it. <laughs> 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 yeah. It's, uh, yeah. yeah, What you doing? She said moving, moving.
2: Yeah, yeah.
4: <laughs> that was kadeem Hardison's joke.
2: Yeah. Do you do you think that? Oh, sorry. First, how long did it take you to rewrite
4: the female character Gloria when you hired Rosie? I didn't change anything—not a word. All I changed was the announcer off-screen when she's introduced on Jeopardy as a former disco queen from Brooklyn, New York. That's all. I I didn't change a line of dialogue or behavior. I just introduced her in that way. Yeah. So see,
2: to me. You've wrote some really good female characters, um, particularly Susan Zeran's character in Bull Durham, uh, Renee Russell's character in Ten Cup. I think that this is your best female rating. Do you feel the same or?
4: Oh, I, I, I like them all. I don't, I don't rate them. I'm fond of all of them for different reasons. Um, you know, they're all, the, the, the problem with women characters in movies written by a man is that they they are often invented just to serve the man, or they're or they're they're defined in terms of the man. It's the wife, it's the girlfriend, it's the whore, it's the mother, it's the yeah. you know that and the importance, whether it's a big part or a little part, is to t- have have a create a character that you could take out of that movie and make a movie just about that person.
3: Yeah. yeah.
4: So they have to have a want, a desire, a need that's separate from the male's need. <laughs> now, yeah. maybe they end up together, maybe they don't, but that, that's the treatment. That's true of any characters, regardless of gender. Why are they in the movie? Yeah. you know, Are they in the movie because you needed a woman in there? Or, you know, that, that's not a good reason to put somebody in a movie. No,
3: definitely not. Yes. You want to go to
2: No, uh, I was just thinking about, um, there's been a lot of rumors about who was actually supposed to be in this film, and they all can't be true, like, so...
4: Give me some of the rumors.
2: Well, I have done, it was originally meant to be Keanu Reeves and Denzel Washington.
4: Yeah, uh, Denzel uh, turned the part down, and, okay. um, and, then, and then we opened it up to casting and uh, discovered Wesley, who... Um, was basically known as he's the other guy in Mo Better Blues. Denzel and the other guy. Yes. And New Jack City just came out, which helped. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was just great in the auditions. And um, and I, again, I got support from the studio. Um, the Keanu, it was not intended for Keanu. The studio head, Joe Roth, um, had a movie called Point Break that was coming out soon, and, yeah. and they felt Keanu was going to become a star. And, and Joe just said, "Can you work him out as a basketball for a few days, and just give him a chance because he's willing, he wants to?" And I said, "Sure." And he just didn't have the basketball skills. He was very hardworking. He was very, he was actually very likable. And uh, he just he didn't he could he would have looked awkward in the group of players we had. Yeah. And I said, "Ken, you're just not you have you don't have the basketball background." He was great. I said, "Thanks for the opportunity." Uh, so that was a favor to the studio um And then we just opened up the casting and
0: found Woody. Yeah. And the the athletic ability as as obviously a big important part. Wrong. I, I I remember reading some interviews that you had done before about not just for for white men but also for for Tim Cup in terms of for Costner's character of Roy McAvoy, but also. Costner's crash, even Tom Robbins, in terms of of what I call a meat, I always have done it in terms of, of, of Bull Durham. But that's obviously, obviously a, a bigger thing because it means then, in terms of it means more authentic in terms of how you, how you film them and how you, you capture the action that they're involved in. It's critical because you know, before television,
4: before televised sports, say in the 50s when it started, you nobody knew what these guys looked like in any sport. It could be soccer your football. It could yeah. be basketball. because nobody ever saw a professional because there weren't <laughs> that many professional teams. So, so internationally and internationally, I don't know, John Wayne kicking a soccer ball. I don't know. Maybe that's what it looks like. Yeah. But once television came in, the demands, I think the audience's demands went way up. And especially in the last 30 years where there's 20 cameras on every game and high speed from every, you know, slow-mo yeah. from every angle. And then it gets repeated all day and all night. And there's 24-hour sports stations, not just one of them, many of them. And so that's a pretty high bar. And, um, and the trick is to finding an actor who is not only right for the part emotionally and physically, but actually has some athletic skills. Because there's not that many, to be perfectly honest, yeah. that, that are convincing. Kevin is a rare bird.
0: Kevin Costner is a good, good, really good athlete. Mm. The, the other thing we were saying as well, Ron, which we think not just about the chemistry and the bromance, as the word is now used, in terms of between Wesley and and, and Woody now, in terms of how it still stands up, but also the fact the film came out in ninety two, and at that time, the the dream team and basketball came over to the to to the to, to Barcelona for the, the Olympics, and for a lot of Europeans, that was probably the first exposure of not just about proper basketball, but absolute superstar basketball essentially and did, yeah. you, did you feel that played a part in terms of maybe after the, the film and that as well too in terms of subsequent years when when it's been shown where people want to talk to you about it well yes because
4: basketball is truly an international sport now and you know the three best players in the nba are four or not us you know luka Doncic and uh um Giannis. Giannis and um the third one was also, well, one, soon it'll be John ja Morant. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, well, he's, he's, and anyway, you know what I mean? It's an international sport. And, it, and in 92, it wasn't that foreign players couldn't compete. The, the, there was two or three. The Yugoslavian national team, which I've written a script about because I'm a friend of Divac, of course. and I wrote a script about him and Petrovic because that became the Civil War, the Croat, the yeah. Serb, and the were best friends. But that Yugoslavian national team, uh, you know, ended up with six or seven guys with real NBA careers, and Vladi and Petrovic were the two biggest stars. But that that opened the floodgates. Um, I, I think part of it. I think also another thing that was happening in this country that the movie I think was a salve for was when we were, this movie came out. This was shot and came out during the whole Rodney King trial and all of that. And um, in fact, I I believe the riots were were right, not far from when the movie came out. Um, And and it had a really positive effect of just saying, oh, wait a minute, (laughs) let's go laugh together. (laughs) Um, The yeah, that, that was a big thing. I I later made another movie when I didn't write called Dark Blue about, yeah. also set at the same time. So in a certain way, they're companion pieces. And that was written originally, the first draft of that was written by James Elroy.
3: Yeah. And yeah.
4: The shooting draft by, um, oh, he's really good. And I just blinked on his name. Uh, I'm embarrassed. But um, he wrote Training Day too. Uh, anyway, so the early 90s was a very, bottled time here, especially in Los Angeles. Um, But basketball was becoming international. Well, let me tell you one more story about that. A year later, or six months after the movie was hit here, it went to the Deauville Festival in France. And the way they promoted the movie was to have a a national all French three-on-three contest where there were regional tournaments and and it came down and the finals was going to be Three on three, all French players, on the beach at Deauville with a hoop. And I was going to go and give the trophy out, right? <laughs> and I thought, well, oh, this is a stupid idea because I was being very provincial and very uh, naive uh, uh, about this basketball because I was still thinking of really bad players in the past. Yeah. You know hard-working foreign players who weren't inventive or creative or graceful, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, all of which is different now, obviously. But so I, I go to the court expecting to see, you know, just my worst biases about what a French basketball player was. You know, I honestly, I thought they would be berets and shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was six Afro-French players who were fabulous all black, all good, all had been studying NBA moves for years. And I thought, okay, the international game is catching up in a hurry. And it was not long after that that Tony Parker became French, black French player became a star for the Spurs and won at least four NBA uh, trophies. And then, um, you know, so it, it was about to change, I guess, in the early 90s. Are you a Lakers fan then, Ron? Based in L.A. or? I'm based in L.A. I, I've given up on the Lakers just because once Dr. Buss died, it's just a meltdown here. Yeah. And they, they brought in an agent, you know, who's Kobe's agent. And Agents shouldn't be given power or anything in anything. Any kind of agent, line them up with the lawyers and just send them out to sea on a boat. And <laughs> Because all this guy keeps doing is hiring over-the-hill superstars for too much money yeah because that's what agents do of
3: yeah. course
4: you know and the other teams are building carefully and i mean the warriors you know the warriors they have three or four guys that hardly played in the playoffs
0: that's my team i'll do the first seven minutes it, so
4: be- me too just because of the way they play yeah steve kerr grew up and went to the high school like across from where i live and uh and he went to arizona where i went to college and so and I like him. I like how outspoken he is politically. Like Popovich.
3: Yeah.
4: Uh, I like the way they play, free and open. And, uh, and yes, he's got Curry. And but they got Curry in the draft. Other teams could have. Yeah. They got Clay Thompson in the draft. Other teams could have. They got Draymond Green in the second round. Other yeah. teams could have. That everybody thought Wiggins was a was was a bust. That's right. Yeah. Not anymore. And they got they got guys on the on the bench that are twenty two that are. I mean, they are built to last. Yeah. Yeah. Curry's, un- Curry's not replaceable, but you, you know, I, I they're the most fun team, but I, I, I've given up on the Lakers for now. Are you, are you happy you
2: got to talk about got, that I'm them. not happy. So, no, that's, you mean, that's so, me. That's you me. Got me, got that's,
3: that's me do, you, do you follow our football
4: at all? No, I'm not. I only. I'm a classic American. Um, I, I watch. I watch the World Cup.
3: Yeah,
4: uh, we get the Premier League on NBC here now, so I'll check it out now and then. But okay, I mean, I've been so busy lately, I hardly watch even you know the sports that I follow. But yes, at to me to watch soccer, if you don't mind my being an American, mm-hmm. um, it, I, I really get it at the highest level. I mean, I'm stunned at the skill levels. Mm-hmm. stunned um and and i tend to watch when it gets to the world cup because the u.s will always go out in the first round if, it, if they even can get into it <laughs> so i root for the u.s and then i just watch games of these teams that are so good yeah um but uh who do you guys who are you guys teams well there's
2: three here we've actually got a guy here arn who you can't see <laughs> oh would you do me a favor can you wish arn happy birthday Hey Rob.
4: Hello, man. Okay, have a fight and send me the bill in LA. I'll get
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> it will be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
4: it's for me like I'm a boxing fan. The people who don't don't like boxing, you know, I used to go to all the fights in Vegas. Yeah um and, and when the good ones were in in LA. Um, and I, I grew up, my dad liked fighting, so I liked boxing. But when you watch it at the highest level, it is so skillful and impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People watch it at a low level, they go, "Ah, it's kind of ugly. Yeah, but watch it at the high level. Yeah. You know, and, and every sport's like that. When you see kids playing it, then you see professionals, you go, holy cow, this is an art form.
0: You know? Yeah. yeah. Ron, can we, is it okay if we talk a little bit more about your your career as well beyond White Men Can't Jump as well too? So you said you're really busy at the moment. So obviously the book is out. Um, with regards to about the making of Bull Durham and that, and the, the the battle that you fought to get the film made as your directorial debut and that as well too. Um, do you want to t- do you want to tell us a lot about it in terms of how the book is? Because it's been getting really really good reviews. And obviously in terms of... The yeah, this, is what guys, this is what we do, guys like me. This is what it looks like, folks.
4: <laughs> the Church of Baseball, the reviews are through the roof. I cannot believe, you know, I mean, somebody said, man, your mother could have written those. I said, no, my mother was much more critical. She didn't like the cursing in the movie. So, um, No, we've gotten, the reviews are 100% rage because it's about, it's really about making a movie. It's not about baseball. And it, I'm told by the publisher, it's the only book that's ever been written about a movie from the inception to the script writing. Where does it all come from? To selling it, to getting it financed, to getting it cast, to prepping it, to shooting it, to editing it, to getting it to the marketplace by the guy who actually had yeah. the idea and did it. Yeah, I didn't realize that at the time. I, I, I didn't. I didn't realize the book would be a phenomenon like this. I just was. It just happened. But, um, yeah, so, so it, it, it's, it's about the struggles to make a movie and to make a movie that everybody tells you is not working. <laughs> everybody tells you isn't funny, isn't sexy, isn't romantic. And it turns out to be on everybody's top list yeah. of funny, sexy, romantic, and the best sports movie. Yeah. So uh, I think it's, and it's entertaining. And, uh, you know, and I, I don't mind telling stories on me when I tried to beat the shit out of the producer on on the set (laughs) for which I feel badly still but he and I are friends still so it's like an Irish bar fight isn't it?
0: (laughs) Very (laughs) much so. After the fight's over okay where are we drinking? (laughs) Yeah Last (laughs) man's done. Was was the film always written with, with Kevin in mind as Crash?
4: About halfway through the script I started thinking of him he wasn't he wasn't a big star yet though, keep in mind, but guys, people kept telling me he's really a good athlete and um, Kurt Russell was unavailable, who was a professional baseball player and and then I knew Kevin's agent and I, which was a fluke because I didn't know anybody and one thing led to another and Kevin really got behind us and that's how it got made. Yeah, so... Yeah, and that made me the sports guy, whether I liked it or not. I thought I was going to be the political filmmaker, and not. So I'm the sports guy. Do you see the films as sports centered, or because I don't? Sometimes
2: I watch them, and I'm not. I'm not really that into the sport, and it's not really relevant to me at all. Bolderham doesn't feel like a sports film to me, but it's always called the best. It is the best sports film, but it's always called the best sports film. And
4: no, you're you're right. Sports is the background. Yeah. I love westerns, and I call Bull Durham a western. It's modeled, you know, Crash is a gunfighter, goes from town to town. You don't know his background ever. Nope, you never know where Crash Davis is from. Yeah. You know, you know that Nuke's followed by his father, who was a church guy and kind of bugging him. I mean, you, you in shorthand, you get Nuke's background. No clue about Crash's background. That's the western, and and once he's done his job, he's fired. And he goes to has to find another job. Yeah. And. Um, so I, and I love westerns. so, but Westerns, and you, when you think of your favorite Westerns, they're not really about the old West. <laughs> the old West is very different than mm-hmm. the movies. They're about, you know, love and loyalty and reckoning and vengeance and all those classic Shakespearean themes. Um, and so for me, sports is a background that we all familiar with. Um, you know, you don't have to explain, oh, boxing movie two guys in their underwear trying to knock each other out everybody gets it yeah golf was a little trickier but golf's become international thanks to the asian boom and tiger yeah. helped really yeah. do that basketball not international so you don't have to worry about that i've been asked to do a soccer movie and i said i don't know enough about the game from the inside out yeah i, I would get it wrong um you know uh, these other things i played and i do i it. So, um, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think they're not really about sports. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're about these other things. That are uh, other. If they're about sports, if you just want to watch sport, watch TV, and then you get to sports. Yeah. You know, you don't get any of the real human drama on TV. They try to do these little sixty-second docs, and they're always corny, and they got too much music on them. And they're BS, really. Um, I can't compete with, with TV. I can't compete with 20 cameras. Mm. But I can take my one or two cameras where TV can't go ever. Yeah, I can go in the locker room. I can go in their heads when he's at the plate. I can go in the fights everybody's having, Woody and Wesley or whoever. Yeah. I can see the meltdowns with a girlfriend. I can go to bed with him and the girlfriend. I can, <laughs> go, I can get on the team
0: bus. Yeah. yeah. So, I just try to live all the places that TV can't go. And, and and that's so obvious because again, like in, in all of your films, it's the relationships that are key. So therefore, it's nearly a sport that evolves around it, as opposed to the whole central concept of each of the films has always been the relationships. Whether you know, in terms of with Bull, with Bull Durham, it's between Kevin's Kevin's character, Susan Sarandon, and also with Tim's character with 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 Tim Cope. That's with. Costner, as with Costner's Caddy, Teach Moran, it's with Renny Russo, it's with the rivalry with, with Dave Sims and that as well too. And similarly with regards to white men in terms of that and everything flows from that it seems in terms of your writing and also then the action and also how the story is framed around that. Exactly. Once you get, you get
4: once you have the relationship of the characters in conflict all drama is is, is... Any drama is based. What is tragic or comic or whatever is based on want and opposition. In other words, I want that. That's the force of opposition or desire and obstacle. Everything. Yeah. Without desire and obstacle, there's not a scene. There's not a movie. Yeah. Um, and so, as I write scripts now, I always say, "What does he want? <laughs> what does she want? What is the, what? What's the? That's where drama comes from and humor." Yeah. Um, and you keep building that and raising the stakes. And I think the stakes of relationships is, is much more interesting than the stakes of is the team going to win the game? Who cares? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, my favorite sports movies are made a long time ago, generally. Um, the Hustler, if you can call Shooting Pool, is still a great movie.
3: Yeah.
4: And is it about pool? No. No. <laughs> Um, is it about men and behavior and our demons? Yes, it, it, in spades. Another movie I love, and I watched it recently, and I was fearful it wouldn't hold up because it was from that sort of kitchen sink school of 60s filmmaking in, out of London, uh, well, then all over the UK, ultimately, but uh, was this Sporting Life. Yes, yes. Billy Richardson and Richard Harris. Is it about rugby or football, I don't even know what's, no. yeah, it was rugby is it? No. I mean, that's, that's, that drives a bit. It, it, this guy, you can't, this, you, you can't get this man out of your head and his struggles and his, and I've known so many athletes that they're comfortable on the pitch or you say, or the field or the boxing ring, but out of that world, they're lost. Yeah. And I just think that's a brilliant movie as well. It's made 50 years ago, 60 that's, years
2: ago. Yeah. Do you, do you still get irritated by people singing the wrong lyrics to songs?
4: Yeah, very much so.
2: <laughs> I, I re-watched it again this week, and I forgot about that scene. And the minute they started saying, bully, I was in bed slapping. I was so good. With that.
4: Uh, I'm going to see Tim. Uh, well, I'm going to see everybody. I'm running in New York um, Monday for a week to sell the book. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm doing a, they're doing a film forum screening of the movie and then I'm doing a and a afterward with Susan, oh, film forum is a big New York venue, and then they're doing a big book selling signing thing at the big bookstore in Times Square and Tim and I are going to do the Q&A, oh, brilliant. <laughs> and, then when I, and then I'm going to Durham for three days, then I'm coming back and Kevin is just coming back like the second from Yellowstone where he's been forever. And about three days later he's going off on vacation. Then he's going to shoot a movie that he's directing. And and he's given me his one night. They're doing a thing in LA where they sell out a theater and it it's called Life Talks LA. And it'll just be him and me on, on sitting up there with a moderator telling stories and working together. And so, so I get so in the next 10 days I'll get to see all everybody. That's great. And, and how did the boat come about, Ron? Um well, one, re- one, one reason is they paid me. <laughs>
0: the obvious one, probably. <laughs> um,
4: um, I really like deadlines. Deadlines and paychecks are good. I like that. Yeah, of course. Um, but uh, I'd written something about the movie, and a literary agent found it. I, I didn't. I didn't have a lit agent. A New York literary agent saw something I'd written, and he met me, and he said. I can, you want to write a book. He says, you have a great voice. I, I said, really, I can write a book. And he said, yeah, what you do, write an introduction. I said, what's that about? He says, the introduction is, why did you write the book other than they paid me <laughs> uh, and write the first chapter? And then we have this chapter, which goes somewhere. And then you do a table of contents. What the each chapter would be, and went and I did and we sent it out there and had all these offers and I and I took Knopf publishing is probably the Tiffany of publishing houses and had an editor who I I, I mean this was all virtual this was pandemic time and uh, this one editor was closer to me in age so I didn't have to explain the 60s and the 70s
3: yeah.
4: this is important you know when yeah. you live through cuz I played ball during the 60s and 70s that that's when it was yeah. And it was a great relationship, and it, w- it was easy to write. It was fun to write. And, uh, and the reviews, as I said, and the sales have been great. Um, but it came about a little bit by accident.
2: Okay. And this was all over the pandemic?
4: Well, during the 12 months, you contracted 12 months to write it, and I was writing two or three other scripts. So I would, I would spend three weeks a month on this other stuff. And then I take a week off and I just write the book. It's kind of which was a relief from having to deal with producers and stuff. So uh, and then I turned it in. And, and the guy said, What are you doing? I said, Well, it's due on Friday, I'm turning it in Thursday. He says, We've never had a writer turn anything ahead of schedule, <laughs> even, even close to being on time. <laughs> that guy said, it was four years later in the book. Two. I said, No, no, I, I like deadlines, you asked for the book. And uh, it was a great experience, to be honest. And uh, a lot of fun.
2: Would you consider writing another phone book or another fictional? They want,
4: they want me to. And I said, I'm not going to do a making of. I've done that. Yeah. Uh, the only one that would make sense is why Man can't jump. But there were no battles with the studio. The battles were, I mean, how I wrote it is interesting. And where it came from in my life is interesting. But the most interesting is that i sued the studio and when you sued rupert murdoch you're an idiot. <laughs> You're a hero <laughs> I, I realized I, i'm suing the richest guy in the world yeah I don't know uh, and i won and it was a jury trial downtown la yeah and it's a really interesting story of, of the trial the lawyer and the what it, but i don't think it's a book i think it's you know, I also need to need to work in this town, so I have to like, yeah, keep keep some stories under yeah, Of course, uh, But I know I'm just trying to get another movie made or a TV series. I got a bunch of projects out there, a couple of them sports related. Uh, one
0: of them that Kevin will get the first look at. So good. Funny, that's was was one of my questions about. You know, has there been times since Tim Coppy you, you and Kevin have tried to? Try to work together again on an over type of project. Yeah, or probably about, whoever one of you overwriting
4: pro- projects. Four years ago, just pre-pandemic, um, I have a script that he likes a lot, and it was kind of written with him in mind, and he's perfect for it. He's now probably too old for it, but um, it was called Q School, and, and the Q School in golf is the qualifying school, uh, which isn't a school at all. It's a six days from hell a tournament that. You have to go through a lot of, jump through a lot of golf hoops to get into it. And then a handful advance to get to play on the tour. They get their tour card. And, and um, I've been to it, to watch it, because guys that have won two U.S. Opens are trying to re-qualify. And, yeah. and there's no crowds. You know, the guy's mother or girlfriend is carrying his golf bag. And these are all Americans. And they're international players, too. And... Um, and so it was, it was a story about a guy who was a former baseball star trying to reinvent himself as a pro golfer and he's really good and and that's happened a couple of major league baseball players have tried to make it and they can't it's just mm-hmm. that difficult <clears throat> anyway it's funny and it's sexy and it's irreverent as hell so and Kevin was perfect for it but we couldn't get the deal right with you know the budget and his needs and, there, it, we, it, and then and the yellows don't get along so I don't know if it will get made with him. I think it will get made with somebody someday. Sure. Um, yeah, and I have one. There's a no, I have, an, I have a really, uh, one I love I'm working on this really incredibly uncommercial. Uh, um, there's a legendary American baseball hero long since dead named Ted Williams. And Ted Williams is one of the most complex, interesting athletes in the history of American athletes and baseball player from the 40s, 50s and 60s. I think he played in Florida, really interesting guy. And in his 60s, he became a world champion fisherman in the Florida Keys, which was not yet a tourist spot. Mm -hmm. And he was cantankerous and he was loud and he was difficult and he was smart. And a Pulitzer Prize-winning American went down there to try to get an interview with him. And he ended up spending two weeks down there and, and the sort of the how they circled each other and it's really a two-hander for two great actors. Sure. And and he came back and he wrote an article that is considered one of the handful of greatest American sports writing ever. Okay. So we optioned the article, which is actually now a book called, What Do You Think of Ted Williams Now? And I think it's great because you don't have to know baseball. It's, it's not about baseball. It's about what is greatness and um, uh, what do we learn from, what is real greatness? What do we learn from greatness? How complex is greatness? Yeah. What are the costs of greatness? Um, and and uh, anyway, I'm, I like this a lot. It, the only way it will get made is if I get two stars. One is a 35-year-old writer and one is a 65-year-old former athlete who looks like Kevin Costner.
0: <laughs> can, well, Costner can, I mean. can still.
4: pass it, no question. Oh, you know, he knows. He knows I'm working on this, and when he does the Q and A, some people ask, "You guys can never work together." And yeah. I'm going to say something "Kevin knows I got the script. Was going to give him the Oscar. <laughs> he's, he, I'm waiting to give it to him because I'm not done yet. But he's got to do his western, which is like ten hours long. But you know, Kevin, you're
0: sitting here, your Oscar's right here, baby.
2: No pressure. <laughs>
0: Ron, just we're probably taking up enough of your time, but just more or more to just more quick questions and that as well. To I watched Tim Cup recently, and to Tim Cup, it's hard to believe is nearly 30 years old. And there's been a lot of, of of stuff done. And when you talk about the book, reading between the lines behind the scenes, it sounded a lively shoot in terms of both with the, the prose that was on tour. Um Gary McCord and that, and Peter Costas involved, plus as well, um, Kevin and Don and that also. You know, again, anything you want to add and want to talk about, about the film? Because like, we, we were just talking, again, we think it's pretty much perfect, again, based on relationships, and based on the relationship that, and again, it was between Kevin and Cheech Moran as well too, and also the rivalry stuff as well, and... It still absolutely stands up again, like like all of your films on that as well, too. So it, it must have been a, a pretty much a, jo- a joy to shoot. Yeah, that
4: was a joy to shoot. We also had something that nobody ever talked about. We had enough time and enough money um, so, so I could get it right as we went. And uh, um, that makes a difference, you know. Yeah. Um, the the scene where he keeps hitting it in the water, which is the key, Um. You know, we, we shot that at a different golf course. We shot everything else. Um, but we shot part of it in Tucson, Arizona, near the Mexican border, and the rest in Houston, Texas. And that scene where he hits it in the water all the time, I wanted to go back every – it took like three afternoons to do that. But I said, I, only, I want to shoot it at the same time every day. Yeah. So the light matches, and it's golden light. And I had the great Russell Boyd, you know, who's done three of my movies, the great Aussie, Oscar winning, brilliant, brilliant cameraman, Peter Weir's guy, you know, he's he all those movies. And he did Picnic at Hanging Rock, didn't he? Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. 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 And Gallipoli and uh, yeah. You're, living, You're Living Dangerous too. Well, yeah. All of And one of the great guys of all time. and. So a lot of movies you can't go back three days. No, we're going to shoot the other place, and then we're going to go over there at you know two o'clock every day, and we're going to shoot from three till seven. So you know, I got the golden light for his twelve. You know, it's like the the heroic light for his. You know, and that whole thing. Studio said, no, 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 we got to recut it so he makes a three, and I went nuts, and they said okay, but um, well, Kevin wouldn't have let him either, but. I said, if he, if he wins, the, there's, no, there's no tournament. If he wins, there's no tournament. Yeah. There's no movie. There's no movie. Yeah. yeah. Let me tell you my Donald Trump story.
0: Oh,
4: please do. So first of all, when the studio, the head of the studio changed when we were editing Think Up, and he said to me, the studio, new guy said, why don't you recut it? So he hits it in the hole the first time, makes a three, and I, of course, I was prepared for this kind of stupidity because I work with these guys. <laughs> yeah. And I said, look, if Humphrey Bogart walks away with Ingrid Bergman at the end of Casablanca, this is, that is a forgettable movie. Yeah. Nobody will remember that movie. 100%. And the guy said, okay, you make a point, you make a point. And they, 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 didn't, they, they didn't push it. So now we're at the, we did a big L.A., uh you know premiere and then we did a, a new york premiere for tinka <clears throat> and after the screening it's a big hotel i mean a, a theater lobby and they've got you know drinks and chicken on a stick and all that shit. and yeah the piano guy says to me ron donald trump would like to meet you he was here in the audience <laughs> i said, fine i mean to me he was at that point I didn't know he was the end of our country or civilization. I, <laughs> I just thought he was a blowhard, yeah. belong, you know, megalomaniac, bad real estate guy. Yeah. Sure. So I was like, character I might like, little that I know. And he comes up to me with Marla. It's when he was with Marla. Yeah.
3: Remember?
4: Marla's a very, really pretty woman, and he comes up with that big fucking tie, and he goes. And you know, I reach out a hand. I don't know he's a germaphobe yet, so he doesn't shake my hand. Yeah. And, um, and, he, and I, don't, I don't even get to say hello. He says, let me tell you how you could have made a better picture. <laughs> I thought I just made a perfect picture. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't even get to say, tell me how, Don, Donald. And I said, I started talking, he says, you know, you go in the editing room. I know how these things work. And you re-edit it. You have your guys. You fix it. You move it around. So his first shot goes in the hole. He makes a three or a two. And he wins the Open. He wins it. He's a winner then. He's a winner. People love winners. Well, now we yeah. And I started to give my... At the end of Casablanca... <laughs> give, <laughs> I, at, well, at the end of Casablanca, if if... Humphrey Bogart, and he turns around Marley, and Marlene walks away. That was it. What? Wow.
0: didn't even wait. Well, now we know, don't we? Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely.
3: There.
0: No, exactly. What's just, it sounded an absolutely horrible ending, because the, the film's ending was perfect. Yeah. When you talk about the ending, Ron, when you say about the shooting at the same time, there's a couple of things. It's... The fact that the ball keeps going on to the water, but he sticks to his guns, he doesn't, you know, I remember you saying beforehand, he never lays up. He goes for it all the time, constantly. But that walk when he does it and he walks up and the, the light that hits Costner right at the, t- at the side and the swell of music that comes up. If there's an absolute perfect golden, you know, Hollywood moment in terms of sports fans and capturing a movie star, and his pride. That is absolutely it. And then just per- perfect shot. That was a steady camp all the way. We walked like a
4: hundred yards with the steady cam. And 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 the, we knew the light was about to disappear. And I'm telling I'm asking the operator of the steady cam, I said, you gotta get this, you gotta get this. Says, I don't know. I got his face and I like the guy. He said, You're getting this goddamn shot. <laughs> Get one shot at it. It's in focus. Did it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> he got it. Absolutely got absolutely nailed it. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And, and what's great about it is with all the triumphant music, he made it twelve. That's why it works. He made it twelve. It would be hollow if he made it three. It would be like yeah, oh, yeah. I
0: can't believe it. Oh. And, and the thing is, as well, because like the argument we always sort of said was Tim Cup made golf kind of accessible to normal working pla- class people in terms mm-hmm. of you've seen it, enjoyed it, and access and rooting for somebody, and also the way as well, too, by capturing what the essence of golf is for a lot of people as well.
4: Well, you know, one of the things that John Normal wrote it with me John played golf at Stanford, which means you're really good because mm-hmm. Tom Watson and Tiger Woods played yeah. at Stanford. I couldn't have got into Stanford, you know, ever for grades or anything, but John and I are still working on things together. He's a very close friend. And I said, John, we gotta return this game to the blue collar roots because people think of golf as a a plutocratic snob game from the country clubs that are racist and private because that's what we see on TV. But go out to the public courses and guys are standing in line at 4.30 in the morning yeah. And they're nobody's very good, but occasionally they're okay, and they dress badly, and they love the game, and they love the game. Uh, and when I played, I played a Scottish tour. I did the Irish tour. I yeah. told you about that. We arranged ourselves, with buddies. You know, the everybody golf is a national game over there in a way. So yeah. the respect for the game. You know, the caddies had better swings than I did. You know. Uh, I said, these are the people this movie is for. Yeah. People, the public golf people. And because that's who I was. I was standing in line five in the morning at a public course. Um, that That's what we want here. And I think that's what the movie actually succeeds at.
0: Totally. Totally. I'm good. I'm happy. Ron, we I'm can keep happy. you here all day to talk about Cobb, to talk about Dark Blue, to talk about Hollywood Homicide and, and stuff. I have one final question. Is there one sport that you maybe tried to capture and and had difficulty in maybe trying to capture in terms of potential projects that you worked on as well too? Maybe you haven't covered in any of your previous films?
4: Oh, good question. Um, as I said, I've turned down soccer because I don't feel I know it well enough. Um, I, uh, I don't... I think there's another sport. I, I want to do another baseball movie. I want to do another boxing movie. I have another golf movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I would say just keep trying to do it better and tell new stories. That's all. It's all about people. It's all about characters. Look at the most Sam Peckinpah was a big inspiration. I saw him interviewed one time after a screening. And because of all the violence of, of his movies, a lot of people just didn't get them. A lot of people did get them.
3: Yeah.
4: And and uh, somebody asked him a question, Mr. Pennington, about the violence. What are your movies about with all the violence? He says, my movies are all about human behavior. It's the most exciting thing to me. And that's what I think. I make movies about human behavior, whether it's funny yeah. or tragic or melancholic or bittersweet. Human behavior is way more interesting than shit blowing up.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Actually, I have one. Sorry, <laughs> I just thought of it. What did you think about when you heard that Stanley Kubrick loved White Man Can't Jump?
4: It, I was, I was, uh, I was pleased and and um, that he was so honest about it because, uh, and I and I thought that it's a movie he couldn't have made. He wouldn't have known how to make. And we tend to. We tend to, um, uh, I wouldn't have known how to make Dr. Love, by the way, So, I, and I admire that. So uh, I, I think we tend to go, wow, about movies that I don't know how you do that one.
3: Yeah. I like Alien,
4: the first Ridley Scott Alien. Yeah. I, I don't know how he did that. That's a great movie. Yeah. How the hell did you make that movie? You know? <laughs> uh, uh, so that's that's my theory on it. That you know, it's the camera's moving all the time, and the uh, and it's freewheeling. Uh, why you can't jump? Uh, we just let the colors explode. Yeah. Um, it was a time we made that movie. Since to go back to what, what this is about, I was getting sick of all the movies out of Hollywood looked the same. all these super long lenses and diffusion filters and smoke in every shot, and I said, stop it! I said, I, I've never seen that any of that in the world. No. I said, I want, I want to shoot a lot of it on 35 mil and 40 mil. We, we'll use long lenses for some of the game action because you need to intercut. But 35 to 40 mil is what we see. That's the human eye is about a 40 mil yeah. lens. Yeah. I said, and I want the camera moving and swirling the way the human eye does and where a basketball is. And I don't, and, and you have to just, you can't go into that approach to filmmaking if you're a control freak. <laughs> And yeah. Stanley was a control freak. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and um, I know because his cameraman, John Alcott, it's in the book, uh, was was one of my guys who helped train me. Mm-hmm. And he was going to be my shoot my first movie as a director, but he died of a heart attack in Cannes, unfortunately. Um, and he said, "Oh yeah, Cooper could spend a week on a shot, but a year on a movie, and I, it would make me crazy doing it."
3: Yeah. You know.
4: And and I think that. The let it rip attitude of how we approach white men. I mean, it was rehearsed, it was planned, it was carefully worked out and structured, but then you just, then it's a dance, then it's jazz. Yeah. And, and uh, I think he didn't do jazz, but yeah. again, I couldn't have done some of his classical music either. Yeah. I, I did find
2: out one thing. This is the third last thing.
4: <laughs> um, see,
2: uh, did you ever see Zombieland 2? Yeah. Did you see yeah. the reference
4: to it? No. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did.
2: <laughs> I'm just going to say it because there's going to be all people watching. Yeah. It. So, Woody Harrelson pardons Wesley Snipes, presidently <laughs> pardons him, and mentions in it masterpieces such as White Man and John. Yeah, and
4: uh, a, a critic, movie critic Finn. Turn me on to that, because I
0: oh, very good. <laughs> Bro, yeah. listen, thanks so much for giving up a lot of your time. We really, really appreciate it. If you're ever in Ireland, hook us up. We'll. I hope, we'll, 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 I hope we'll... to be. Uh, you know, I hope to be. The whole
4: frigging pandemic thing is just. I plan to get back to Europe, and I just uh, I, the international
0: travel with masks and shit. Oh, it's Crazy. Yeah. Let's well, yeah. If you ever in our part of the world, let us know. There's a pint with your name on it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, on beh- and on behalf of the film uh, of uh, subterranean community cinema and of best of best podcast, thanks so much for your help. We really, really appreciate. It. Thanks for your time.
4: Thanks, guys. Let's do it You're again right. something Great. Well, thanks very, Thank you much. very much. Thanks for your help.
3: Cheers. Uh, cheers.
0: All the best. Bye bye.
1: So there you have it, Mr. Ron Shelton. Woo! Of white Man can't jump <laughs> fame, the director. And uh, thank you very much to Raw. And thank you to Subterranean Film Club for allowing us to use this. And to Conor McGill and to Arlene and Pingu.
2: And D. Dee, D's part of it too. Dee, have a don't, forget about if you Dee don't talk about know Dee. know rightly we are Fucking <laughs> so we're going to
1: So we're going to go again. We'll probably come back in about seven years' time. But until then, uh, go back and listen back to previous episodes check out uh, the what well, I was going to say check out our bonus episode but we don't have one no, so this is it this is
2: it this is all you're getting no this is the bonus this is the bonus if <laughs> <Have> you <laughs> have you anything you want to promote about your upcoming events
1: uh, oh yes I have a I have a tour I'm um, doing stand up uh, around the north in November December so but and, uh, all joking I say we will be back um, sometime very no, soon no we will we will um, we have a couple of epics to do and so <sighs> it'll <laughs> the sigh is just knowing how much work is going to be involved in them but they will it will be worth it it will be worth it yeah so we will be talking to you very soon thank you
3: very much thanks to Ron Sheldon thanks to Subterranean Film Club and that's us
2: up the boys